You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's good to see you this morning. I hope you're doing well. You survived the weather. So thanks for, uh, thanks for kind of marching through blustery weather to be here this morning. And so we are in Mark chapter 9. And so if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to Mark 9, it would serve you to have that open and on your lap where you can read along with us. Mark chapter 9 is, uh, is where we're going to be today. And as you're, as you're turning there, let me just preface the text by making an observation. You know, if you were to look across this church family, just across the people sitting in this room today, you would notice that there is such a wide range of what living for Jesus looks like in this room. And so there are some in this room who have been overseas as missionaries. There's others that you have spent like you know, all of your life being a missionary here locally in this area. There's that wide range of how that plays out. There's some in the room who um, are moving toward or even have adopted and fostered. And then there's others who are just helping that happen here. And so there's all of this variation in what, you know, living for God looks like. Some in this room um, have been or maybe will be called to like full-time inside the church sort of ministry. Others will be called to full-time kind of outside working a, a kind of a regular job ministry. There's just all of this variation. It's a really wide range of what living for Jesus looks like across a room like this. And what I love about the passage that we're going to be in today is that Jesus is cutting through all of that clutter. Like all of these, these wide range of, of like how living for him and following him can play out in our life. And he's cutting through all of that clutter and he's getting down to the non-negotiables. He's coming down through all of that and saying, this is what life looks like, not just for some of my followers, not just for, you know, a few of my followers, but this is what life looks like for all of my followers. He's getting it down to that sort of a on-the-ground, non-negotiable, everyone that follows me, this is what you're in for. He's getting down on that level with us today. And so, which I think is a really helpful and good thing, we need that. There's moments where we need Jesus to cut through all of the possibilities and get down to what, like, is underneath all of those, to what matters most to these non-negotiables. All of us need these moments where Jesus shows us the non-negotiable marks of what life in his kingdom looks like. And that's where we are today. So let me just kind of give you the setting. In verse 30, he has retreated from the crowd. So no longer are his disciples and, and, you know, Jesus doing a bunch of public things. They've intentionally retreated. And verse 31 says that they have done that so Jesus can teach his disciples. And so now, uh, if you get to verse 33, he is in Capernaum, kind of their home base for ministry. And he has gotten the disciples. They're around in a house. He's put them in a living room. If you want to you know, kind of use that picture. He's got them in a living room, and he begins to teach them what life in his kingdom, what life following him, life pursuing him, what the marks of that life will have. Now, let me just prep you for what we're going to see today. These are going to be some hard words. It is hard. I, I, studying for this this week, it makes me think, how in the world do you do this? I mean, they are hard words, but I think they're really needed words. If you're in here and you are um, a follower of Jesus, I think they're words that we really need to hear in the room this morning. They're hard, but I think, I think they're words that we need. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you in this. I think the, and I've said this a couple of weeks ago, but I think the best place for you to be if you are exploring Jesus is in the midst of a church family who is taking the words of God, even the hard ones, seriously. 
who don't like strain out the words of God, like just to give you the ones they like and kind of keeping the ones they don't like over there. I think it's good for you to be in a place that's taking all of God's word, even the hard ones, and taking those words seriously. Because here's the worst thing that could happen for you. The worst thing that could happen if you are just exploring Jesus is for you to be in a church family who just gives you what you want to hear. And and here's the problem with that. If you start to follow that God who is just giving you what you want to hear, you are following a mythological Jesus. We want to make sure we get the real Jesus to you if you're exploring Jesus. And so it's a good place for you to be, a a place that is taking all the words of God seriously. So in light of that, why don't you read along with me here? And we're going to see three marks of kingdom life, three marks of what it means to follow after Jesus. And here's the first one. Let me just go ahead and give this first one to you, and then we'll start. The first mark that Jesus is going to show us is that life in the kingdom of God is upside down. It is counterintuitive. It is an upside down sort of a life. So follow along with me here in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, he's not asking because he doesn't know. He's asking precisely because he does know what they were discussing. And this is where it goes really bad for the disciples, verse 34. But they kept silent. I probably would have too. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Oh, those disciples. They are not your varsity team. Can we all just see that? If you just line everybody up on the playground, they are not your first picks. Okay, they are not those people. They are really messed up. Now think about this in the context of Mark. Jesus has just told them, I am about to die. And in the next breath, they are arguing about who is gonna be the greatest. Which one is gonna kind of have the place of prominence here? Now we said this last week, but let me just remind you. Every one of these little episodes like this with the disciples is both a window and a mirror. It's a window in the sense that God is giving you like a clear view inside the disciples' heart. He is showing you all the muck and mire in there. He's showing you a heart that looks around and is really concerned in light of all these other people. God, you're surely going to make me the greatest of all these people, right? He's showing us that. It's a mirror into their heart. It's a window into their heart. But it's also a mirror. Every one of these moments are opportunities for you and I to hold up the word of God so we can see our own heart. And listen, if, if you know your heart in the room, you know that right there exists in you. If you know your heart, you know that that same little ache exists in you. That same sort of, I'll step over any dead body and I'll kill them along the way to be great, greater than them. That that same thing exists in you. I, the difference in us and the disciples, or most of us and the disciples, is we just have just enough refinement not to say that out loud, Right? That's the difference, but that's in you. It's in me too. And then I want you to notice how Jesus responds to this argument about who's going to be the greatest. Look at verse 35. And he sat down and called the 12, and he said to them. So they're arguing about who's the greatest, and here's his response back to their argument. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, and that's a really big statement. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and service and servant of all. So if you want to be great, you've got to be last of all and servant of all. That, that's the condition for being great in the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to notice here that first phrase, if anyone would be great. Now, I want you to see there that Jesus does not squash their desire for greatness. 
He doesn't squat. He actually feeds that desire for greatness. If you want to be great, let me show you how. That's what he's saying here. Because here's what Jesus knows. Going back all the way to Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus knows that we are made in the image of God. And part of being made in the image of God is a deep desire that is hardwired into our soul for greatness. That is hardwired into you. It's hardwired into me. There is no escaping that. That is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Now, if you know the biblical storyline... In Genesis 1 and 2, here's what's happening. God has hardwired every human being for greatness. Our first parents included Adam and Eve. And for the first two chapters of the Bible, they are looking vertically for that greatness. They are looking to God and receiving their greatness from God. But in Genesis 3, our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God. They ate the forbidden fruit. They rebelled against God. And when that first sin entered into the, to the equation of the world, entered into the, to the kind of the human history here, when it entered the world, it distorted everything, including our desire for greatness. So from Genesis 3 on, rather than greatness being a vertical thing, us looking to God to define greatness and us receiving our greatness um, from God, now that, that desire for greatness went from vertical and it got bent out horizontally. So that now we're looking to receive greatness from other people, not from God. We're looking for it horizontally, not, not vertically. And this is what Jesus is confronting. He's, he's looking at his disciples and he's saying, you really think that you're going to get greatness but by looking externally, but by looking at your place and kind of keeping your place and your prominence. You really think it's going to be that way, but that's not where true greatness is found. I love what Jesus does here. He doesn't renounce their desire for greatness. He just redirects it. He says, you're not gonna, that's not where true greatness is. If you want to be great, like not just like a spasm of greatness, like you're great for tomorrow or for the next few years, but if you want to be great for all eternity, like in three billion years from now, if you want to be great that long, if you want to be great like that true, eternal, lasting greatness, here's what it looks like. It looks like servant of all. Last of all, that is what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. People who, who live like that, but this disposition of their heart toward everyone else, that, not that I'm first, not that I deserve to be respected, but I am least of all. I am last of all. I am servant, not of some, but of all. It does not say servant of those who are easy to love. Servant of those who treat you well. It does not say servant of those who, who do well to you. Servant of those who respect you. Servant of those who serve. It doesn't say that. It says servant of all. That means even those people that it is costly and inconvenient to serve. That we're even servants of them. Okay, now if you look at verse 36 and 37, rather than telling a parable to illustrate greatness, Jesus acts out a parable. Now, now watch what he does in verse 36 and 37. He's just said, here's what biblical greatness is. He's saying, I want you to be great. I'm not renouncing that desire. I'm, I'm just redirecting it. Here's what it looks like. Servant of all and last of all. And then he shows, he kind of acts out this parable to illustrate. Verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. Okay, now if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying here in this text, we've got to look not through a 21st century lens, but through a 1st century lens. 
in 21st century, see, I, our problem in 21st century like world is we have deified children. We don't live in a patriarchal society or a matriarchal society. We live in a kidriarchal society, right? Where, where everything revolves around kids. And listen, I, I just want to throw this as just a side note in here. That is to the harm of many of our families, right? So, so our culture is way on this side of the spectrum, deifying kids. First century culture was way on this side of the spectrum. In first century culture, when he's using this illustration, it is an illustration of loving and serving the least of these. This is the illustration. So if we were to maybe move this into 21st century language, we might use this imagery. It might have gone like this if Jesus were alive and like doing this now. He's with his disciples. He's in the room. He's just talking about greatness, about being least of all, servant of all. And then Jesus gets up. And he walks to the front door and he opens the door and you can smell this man before this man walks in. And Jesus opens the door and says, please come in. And this man who is filthy, he's dirty, he's smelly. He walks right into the middle of this living room. You're one of the disciples. You're sitting around Jesus and you're watching this go down. Jesus welcomes him right into the middle of the living room and gives him a huge bear hug. And then he looks at the disciples and says, this is what greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. It's seeing people like this. It's noticing people like this. It's welcoming people like this. It's considering yourself less than people like this. It's serving people like this. That's greatness in the kingdom of God. This is, this is what it looks like to be great. And I love in verse 37, he says, and here's the ironic thing, when you serve and you consider yourself least in these moments where you serve and notice and welcome people like this, you're actually doing that to me. That is walking you into intimacy with me. And so I think this would just be a a wonderful time to ask the question, does our life reflect this, this upside down nature of the kingdom of God? Do we really consider ourselves, the disposition of our heart, that we are last of all and servant of all? Now, I want to I try to give you the best litmus test I know to help you discern that. The, the best way I, I can probably help you discern, am I living in such a way that I am last of all and servant of all, is to ask yourself the question, to watch yourself. How do you respond to people when they treat you like a servant? When people treat you like a servant, not well, but they treat you like you're least of all, like your servant of all, how do you respond to them? So I, I think one of our problems is we all live with like an unconscious pursuit of horizontal greatness, trying to receive greatness from other people. And I think the best way for us to be aware of that unconscious pursuit is to be aware of what is happening, to watch what happens when we don't get the horizontal greatness that we demand and want. So when people treat you like a servant, like they strip you of your dignity, they, they don't give you the respect that you think you deserve. They talk down to you like you're not on their level. They lie to you. They, they cheat you. They do all of those sorts of things. The question is, how do you respond back to them in that moment? That's the best reflection I could probably give you. The best thing I could ask you to think about, to ask the question or answer the question, am I, do I consider myself least of all and servant of all? How do I respond to people who treat me like a servant? And just to clear, clear this again, Jesus is saying, this is the path to greatness. Like, we all want that in here. And if you want to be great for the next three billion years, right, for all of eternity, if you want to be great that long, Jesus is saying, this is how you do it. Last of all, servant of all. He's saying, this is what life inside the kingdom of God looks like. 
it looks upside down. Like the first are going to be last. The last are going to be first. This is what greatness looks like. And then he's going to go on and give us the second mark. So mark number one, life in the kingdom of God is an upside down sort of a life. And then he's going to say this, that life in the kingdom of God isn't about you. Oh, that's hard, isn't it? That life in the kingdom of God is not about you. Okay, have you ever been in one of those conversations where uh, the first part of the conversation goes bad and you know it's gone bad? You know it did not go how you wanted it to go. And so now your strategy in part two of the conversation is, how am I going to redeem what just happened in part one? And so you give your best kind of shot at redeeming and rescuing the conversation only to find out that you just made it worse. That is what happened to the disciples here. So it has gone bad. Part one has gone bad. They are arguing about who's the greatest, and Jesus has to kind of correct and and redirect them. And then John opens his mouth in verse 38, and it goes from bad to worse. John said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. And this last phrase, and specifically the last word in this phrase is huge. Because he was not following us. It doesn't say he wasn't following you, Jesus. He wasn't following us. We've got a problem with this guy. He's doing these things, but he's not one of us. He is outside of our crew. He is not a part of our little tight-knit clique here. That's the problem. I love how Paul Tripp describes this. He says, the disciples had a unique ability, a unique ability to pull in the walls of God's kingdom to the size of their own little lives. That the disciples had this unique ability to take the kingdom of God who is big and wide, covering people who are doing things like this, casting out demons in the name of Jesus, covering even people like this, but they had this unique desire to pull the walls of that kingdom this tight just to cover them. This unique ability to only be able to see the world through their little lens. The disciples had that sort of an ability. So if we're going to state the problem in John's mind, here's the problem. The problem was not that this man was casting out a demon. The problem is this man was casting out a demon and he wasn't a part of John's crew. He wasn't in their little social circle. He, He saw this guy not as an ally in the kingdom of God, but as an obstacle and a competitor to his own personal little kingdom. This was the problem. And in light of that, Jesus responds, verse 39. Jesus responds like this. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. So so let me just make this clear one more time. I love how one person said it. He said, Jesus is rebuking John because his response to this man was totally negative. Now the question is, why was his response to this man totally negative? Here's the answer. Not because John was concerned for Jesus and Jesus' kingdom, but because John was concerned about John and his kingdom. He was not out to protect the name of Jesus in this moment. He was out to protect his little place of prominence with Jesus. This is the problem. And Jesus is looking back in verse 39 and 40, and he's just reminding John, my work, like what I'm doing, my kingdom, the things I'm doing in this world, it is bigger than your little life. It's bigger than you. 
It is bigger than you. He's looking at John and he's essentially saying this, John, you have got to get over you. You've got to get past you. And how many of us need to hear that this morning? That we need to get over us. That we need to get past us. I think it leads to this question. Is your life about you and your kingdom or about Jesus and his kingdom? Because life in the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, it is about me and my kingdom, not about you and your little personal kingdom. So so is your life about you and you winning or about Jesus and Jesus winning? Are you the point or is Jesus the point? Is your life about making you look good or about making Jesus look good? That's the question that this is is asking. Who is the center of your life? I I just think that there's so many of us who need to think about this this morning. Is my life about me or is it about Jesus? I love what one pastor said. The more you think you're the point, the more you think your life is about you, the more you think you're the point, the more you'll be enslaved to a million different sins. Now, Selah on that. The more you think you're the point of your life, the more you're going to be enslaved to a million different sins. It's where impatience comes from, where worry comes from, where anger comes from, where greed comes from, where immorality comes from. The more you think you're the point, the more all of those things will enslave you. When you think you're the point, it makes it impossible to love other people. When you're the point, the only thing you can do is use other people to further your cause. But when Jesus is the point, it frees us from a million different sins. When Jesus is the point, it frees us to love people rather than using people. When Jesus is really the point of our life, we'll be able to say what this John later wrote in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 30. I must decrease and he must increase. I, it, when, when Jesus is the point, it frees us to lose so that he can win. When Jesus is the point, it frees us to look really, really bad if Jesus can look really, really good. It frees us for all of those sorts of things. So let me just ask you this again. Think about your life, your marriage. Think about your parenting. Are you the point or is Jesus the point? Life just goes so, so badly when you're the point. Marriages break, parenting fails and flails, all those sorts of things. Friendships disintegrate. When you're the point, everything breaks. When Jesus is the point, now you are free to not have to win. You're free to make Jesus look great. You're free to allow Jesus to win in all of those situations. Life in the kingdom of God looks like this. It's bigger than you. Can we just be reminded of that this morning? That if you're a follower of Jesus, you're caught up in something much bigger than you and your little life and me and my little life. And then he's got mark number three, and this is where it gets really tough. Mark number three. He's already told them that life in the kingdom of God is an upside down sort of a life. He's showing them that life in the kingdom of God is bigger than them. And then he's showing them this. Life in the kingdom of God is serious about sin. It is deathly serious about sin. Okay, now Jesus is about to use 
what I would call shocking language to describe sin and the seriousness of sin. Now, let me remind you why I I think it's so shocking for us in the room. It's shocking because as fallen human beings who have been distorted and marred by sin, we cannot see sin as clearly as we need to. When we look at sin and think about sin, we see it through a foggy window. So we're just not seeing it with the sort of clarity that we would like to be able to see it with. But Jesus sees sin and all of its effects, both physically and temporally and spiritually and eternally. He sees all of those effects with absolute clarity. And in light of that, he uses this language to describe it, how serious sin is. So read along with me here. Verse 42. This is is Jesus trying to communicate, here's how serious and big of a deal sin is. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Shocking language. Gets worse. Verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Verse 48, shocking language to describe hell here. Where, their worm, or where, the, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, is that not a graphic and sobering view of how Jesus talks about hell? Verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So let me first clean up one thing in this passage. Look for verse 44 and verse 46. You can't find those verses, right? Because they're not there. Verse 44 and 46 don't exist in in your Bible. And there's a reason for that. Back in the day, a scribe, um, kind of for poetic balance in this passage, took verse 48. Where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. He took verse 48 and added it right after verse 43 and right after verse 45 for just kind of poetic balance in the passage. But all of the earliest and best manuscripts don't have those two things in there. And so that's why it doesn't appear in your English Bible. Your translators did a good job in saying that's not reflective of what the Bible actually said in in its earliest manuscripts. So that's why it doesn't exist. Now, in light of that, let me try to clarify what this passage is not saying. So before we get to what it is saying, here's what it's not saying. Jesus is not saying, if your hand causes you to sin, go get the knife when you get home and cut your hand off. He is not not saying you should be about amputating body parts here. That's not the point. Let me give you two reasons for that. First of all, because in the Old Testament, the Old Testament law forbids self-mutilation. So first of all, that would be one. Second of all, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is clear that the root problem of our sin does not exist in our hands, but in our heart. And so if we're going to get down to the problem of sin, we've got to get past physical body parts into the core of who we are. And amputation doesn't work well when we're talking about our heart, right? So physical amputation is not the thing. 
But here is what Jesus is showing us in this passage. Three things about sin. Here's the first one. He's showing us how serious our sin is. How serious it is. He is using gory and graphic imagery, gory and graphic metaphors to get across just how serious it is. Now just think about the imagery here. He's saying, look at your hands. Do you see your hands? I mean, my hands are pretty important to me. He's saying, you see how important they are to you? If they cause you to sin, this should be our approach to, to your hands. Cut them off. That is how serious sin is. You see your feet? I, I know your feet are important. But in regards and in relationship to sin, here's how important and how serious sin is. If your feet cause you to sin, cut your feet off. Now my eyes, I love my eyes. I, I love the fact that I can see. And he's saying, do you see how important your eyes are? In, re, in relationship to sin, here is how serious sin is. If your eyes cause you to sin, gouge your eyes out. That is how serious it is. Here's what he's saying. That for every Christian, for people who are doing life with Jesus in the kingdom of Jesus, every one of his followers, and we're not talking like Christian by name. We are saying that a person that has been saved by grace, rescued from their sin. For every one of those people following Jesus, there is a seriousness about their sin. They do not approach their sin in a lackadaisical way, in a casual way. Jesus is looking at us here and he is saying, you have to put sin to death. That's how serious it is. This is the call of every Christian. Look at sin in your life and you put that sin to death. This gory and graphic imagery is used by Jesus to tell us sin will kill you. It is that damaging and that serious. And in light of that, as a Christian, as a person who is in my kingdom following me, You have got to be a person who is continually putting sin to death in your life. Like half measures will not do. Small steps are never wise in dealing with sin. He is saying we have got to do everything we can to deal decisively with it. Now, in light of this call to put sin to death that Jesus is giving here, about how serious our sin is, it made me think about John Owen. Now, John Owen is a a Puritan. He was a pastor of a few hundred years ago who wrote some of the best stuff on sin and temptation and killing sin in our life. He wrote some of the best stuff that has been written in the 2,000-year history of the church. I think it is still like the gold standard on how this plays out in a Christian's life. John Owen is such a big deal that Dan Hutchins on our staff named his son after John Owen. His son is named Owen after John Owen. That's how good this guy is. Okay, now he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. It's a book on putting sin to death. Now, isn't it just interesting how few books in 21st century Christian world you see titled that, Putting Sin to Death? So he wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. And let me read uh, some of what he says in there. He's commenting on Romans chapter 8, and he says this. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You, It's two options. You kill it, it kills you. There's no middle ground. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And then he says this. He that stands still and allows his enemies to double blows upon him without resistance will undoubtedly be conquered in the issue. Makes sense. If a person is starting to punch you and you do nothing, you're probably going to get knocked out. That's what he's saying. It's not going to go well for you. And then he goes on to say this. 
If sin be subtle, watchful, strong, and always at work in the business of killing our souls. Selah. Sin is subtle, strong, and always in the business of killing your soul. He says, if that's the case, and, and, and in light of that being the case, he says, and if we be slothful, negligent, foolish, in proceeding to the ruin thereof, like to the killing of sin, if we're negligent in that, foolish in that, slothful in that, he asks this question, can we expect a comfortable outcome? Like he's saying, if sin is trying to kill you, and you just kind of sit back and like have a lackadaisical, slothful approach to it, can you expect that to go well? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no. It's going to go terrible for you. And then he goes on to say this. There is not a day, but sin is either one or two things. Sin foils you or is foiled by you. It prevails against you or is prevailed upon. And it will be so all the while we live in this world. And I love this last sentence here. He says, let no men think to kill sin with few, with easy, or with gentle strokes. You can't kill sin with few, easy, or gentle strokes. And I, I'm going to paraphrase one other thing that he says, and I love this. When, when he's talking about what does it mean to not be gentle with sin? Here's his description on not being gentle with sin. Here's what we have to do to kill sin. He says, lay your hands upon the throat of these things. Lay your hands upon the throat of sin and don't let go until it stopped breathing. That's how you kill sin. It doesn't work by gentle and easy strokes. He's saying that if you want sin dead in your life, if you want the influence of sin diminished in your life, you have to grab it by the throat and not let go until it stops breathing. That's the approach of every Christian towards sin. See, that's a perfect summation of what Jesus is saying here, that sin is that serious, that it needs to be dealt with that decisively, that there's only two options. Sin will kill you or you will kill sin, no middle ground. And let me just clarify, when we're talking about battling sin, sin is fought on two fronts. Front number one is the battle with the hands. It's like your behavior. That he's saying we probably need to think about how Personally, we're wired in the things that we're susceptible to, and we need to put boundaries around our life. In other words, if you struggle with alcohol, you're a fool if you have alcohol in your home. He's saying you've got to amputate these things. You've got to deal drastically with these things. Sin is that serious that you have to come in and gouge these things out. See, if your deal is greed, a trip around the mall is not the place for you. Okay, now, now let me just get maybe like one step, I, I think maybe even more helpful. That, that maybe we should think of it this way, not even in like what is overtly sinful, but he's saying that anything that is robbing and stealing your affection for God, that could be a movie, that could be like songs, that could, you just name it. Anything that is stealing your affection for God rather than, con than contributing to your affection for God. These things have to be dealt with. They have to be gouged out and cut out of your life. This is what he's saying. We have to deal that drastically with sin in the hands, in our behavior. But we all know that at the end of the day, our behavior is not the biggest problem. That sin always goes deeper than our hands. It goes all the way to our heart. And this is where we need to pray for help from the Spirit of God. 
to give us new taste buds every day, to give us taste buds for gospel promises over and above promises that the world and our idols hold. We need to pray for that, that by the Spirit of God, our heart would be in tune to the promises of God, that our heart would love Jesus, that our heart would desire more and more the things of God. We need to pray for that in our life. So it's both hands and heart. So this is the first thing he's showing about sin here, how serious it is that your personal sin is so serious that you have to deal decisively with it. But it's not just a personal thing. He's also showing us in verse 42, he's showing us how serious our sin is to those around us. Look at verse 42. It's not just sin is serious to us, but to those around us. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones, and little ones is not um, just talking about children there. It's talking about any believer, any son or daughter of God, especially new believers. He's saying that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now that is sharp language, isn't it? That is hard language. Jesus is saying, listen, Your sin has a dramatic effect on those around you. The way you live has a dramatic effect on those near you. And he's saying that it would be better for you before you cause a a little one to, to stumble or to sin by your sin. It would be better before that happens, before you grieve the heart, in, uh, the heart of God in that sort of a way, it would be better before you do that if someone were to grab a stone, tie it to your neck, throw you overboard, and for you to drown. Now that's, that's shocking just to say that, isn't it? But Jesus here is reminding us of just how influential we are in the lives of other people. Sometimes we forget that. He's reminding us that we have not just been chosen to be a son or daughter of his, We have also been chosen to be an instrument in his hands for the good of other people. And he's reminding us that that your life is really influential in those around you. So let me just apply this maybe to our dads in the room. Dads, I I want you to hear this and know this, that you are so much more influential than you know in your home. The way you deal with sin is so much more influential. The way you willingly coexist with sin in your life is so much more influential than you, than you would ever imagine. And, and so maybe it would be a good thing just to ask, dads in the room, the way that you're loving Jesus and dealing with sin, does it stir up faith in the life of your wife, in the life of your kids? Is that stirring up faith in them? To our moms and our wives in the room, you're much more influential than you know. And, and does your life in your home, the way you're dealing with sin, the way you're loving Jesus, is it spurring and, and encouraging the faith of your husband, the faith of your kids, or actually causing them to stumble? I mean, Jesus is trying to wake us up to just how influential we are in terms of our friendships. Our friendships are much more influential than we know. And Jesus is saying we need to be careful that our friendships, that our friendships with people are actually encouraging them to be more of what Jesus has for them. That, that we, we've either got one or two positions we can be in in terms of, of our relationship with people. We can either be in the way of what God is doing or a part of what God is doing. And Jesus is pleading with us, be a part of what I'm doing. So he's saying your sin is not just serious to you, it is also serious to those around you. The way you deal with sin, dealing decisively with sin is important for the sake of those around you. 
And then lastly, he's saying that he's showing us here, he's showing us that, that our sin is not only serious to us and to those immediately around us, it's also very important and very serious to the world, to the world around us, to culture around us. Look at verse 50. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. He's reminding us that our lives really do matter. Like for the world at large around us, our lives really do matter. Salt has this preservative effect. And one of the things that the life of a believer has in a culture at large is a preservative effect, a restraining effect. That one of the best ways a son or daughter of God can show how good grace is, is by how they live by how they love Jesus and put sin to death in their life. It's one of the greatest ways you can adorn the gospel. It's one of the best ways you can make the gospel look beautiful to the world at large around you. Jesus is just trying to remind you, do you know how influential your life is, not just in the immediate context around you, but to the world at large around you? It's got this preservative effect. It restrains. It's doing all of that all the time. So you should take your life seriously, saying your life really matters that much. Okay, now let me close with this. So I want you to picture the disciples. They've been in this house with Jesus, and he's just unpacked all of that on them, just like this happened in the room this morning. Now, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm looking back at Jesus and saying, you've got to be kidding me. How is all of that possible? I mean, Jesus, do you know how hard it is to be a servant of all? Do you know how hard that is? Do you, Jesus, do you know how hard it is to get over myself? That is hard work. I mean, I, if, I'm, if I'm them, and, and, and I'm now reading this passage, I'm looking at Jesus saying, how in the world do you deal with sin like that all the time? How do you do that? That feels impossible. And in light of that feeling that exists in me when I read this passage, I think probably exists in the disciples, and I think probably exists in you at the end of a sermon like this, I am so grateful that we are ending with communion. I think communion is really helpful to help us see how this plays out. And communion, when we dip the bread, representing the broken body of Jesus, into the juice, representing the blood shed on the cross for our sin. When we dip the bread in the juice, it's reminding us of two things that we've got to remember at the end of a sermon like this. Here's the first one. Communion reminds us that our standing with God is not based on how well we do the things in this passage. Aren't we grateful for that? See, the, the, the dipping the bread in the juice is reminding us, the broken body and blood of Jesus is reminding us that we have a Savior who is also our substitute. And as our substitute, you know, every one of those moments where you're a servant of some and not of all, here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus substituted himself for you. In every one of those moments, here's what you can know about Jesus. In every moment of his life, he was never a servant of some. He was always a servant of all. On your behalf, in your place. You know, every one of those moments where you just, you just can't get over yourself. You just can't get past what you want and your little preferences and your little world. You just can't get past you. You know, every one of those moments, what we have to remember is Jesus is our substitute who in every moment of his life got over him. Every moment of his life got over himself so that you could win. He got over him on your behalf, perfectly fulfilling the commands of God. You know, every one of those moments where you want to kind of have a desire to put sin to death, but you just don't have it. It's just not there. 
You're just not dealing with sin like that. Do you know the good news is that Jesus is our substitute? And when we dip the, the bread in the juice, we're being reminded today that, that Jesus, in every moment of his life, dealt with sin just as God the Father would have him deal with sin in your place, for you, on your behalf. It's reminding us that we have a substitute as a savior. His name is Jesus, who did it all in our place. And our standing with God is not based on what you do, but on what he did for you. It's reminding us of that. But it's also reminding us of this. It's also reminding us of where the power to live in these things comes from. When we dip the bread in the juice, we are being reminded today of what Jesus has done for us. That Jesus was our servant when we were rebels against him servant of all for us on the cross willing to be slaughtered in our place he served us like that and when we feel that deep down in our bones what jesus has done it will empower the doing in this passage and in those those moments in jesus's life here's what we know about jesus that he perfectly got over himself he lost on the cross so that you could win He was slaughtered so that you could live. And when we get a grip on what Jesus has done deep down in our bones, it motivates the doing. It energizes and motivates a life where we can lose so others can win. And when we think about the cross and how on the cross, how serious Jesus took sin. Serious enough to be slaughtered on the cross for our sin. That's how serious Jesus was against it. That's how decisively he dealt against it. And when we get a sense of what Jesus did on our behalf on the cross, when we feel that deep in our bones, it energizes the doing of putting sin to death in our life. That's what communion reminds us of. That our standing is not based on our doing, but Jesus' doing energizes. What he has done energizes our doing in this moment. So in light of that, why don't you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.